Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. Some time ago, we did a program here on John Pope Hennessy, the most interesting of the 19th century governors of the colony of Hong Kong. This week, we're considering the governorship of one of the giants of the 20th century administration of Hong Kong, Sir Murray McLehose. From 1971 to 1982, McLehose was the longest-serving governor of the colony. But our programme is not so much about McLehose himself as about the McLehose years. He presided over a period of unprecedented prosperity and relative stability, a time that's regarded with nostalgia by some who lived through it and some who didn't, a time when Hong Kong people in general were better off, healthier and better educated than ever before. McLehose was a reforming governor. But Hong Kong in the McLehose years was, after all, a colony, undemocratic, with little welfare provision, and shaken by important changes in mainland China. It was, as everyone said, a borrowed place on borrowed time. So I welcome two Hong Kong scholars who are students of the McLehose years and also were students in the McLehose years. Ray Yap is a political scientist. He's professor in the Department of Public Policy at City University, as well as being research director of the think tank SynergyNet. Lai Tai Lok is a sociologist, professor of Hong Kong studies and vice president for research and development at the Hong Kong Institute of Education. Um, so, Ray Yap, I want to start with you yeah. and ask you to tell us a little bit about McLehose himself. What had he done before he became governor of Hong Kong? I think McLehose's uh, background is a bit interesting because before him, uh, almost all the governors of Hong Kong uh, came from the colonial surface. But, uh, but McLehose has a background of a, a career diplomat. He came from this um, uh, foreign service and he has served in uh, various uh, locations like Denmark, uh, even Beijing or uh, Vietnam. And, He'd been in embassies. Yeah, and I, so I, I think it's interesting to uh, to see that background because um, in the British administrations, these uh, the foreign service people always have a sense of superiority when they uh, compare the colleagues in the colonial service. Right? They think that they are the one who take care of this uh, strate- larger strategic interest of yes. Britain, whereas all the colonial service people are parochial mm. or sometimes going native. So I think this is a, a big difference when compared with the past governor. So he was the first foreign service yeah. fellow, and I think he came in the time that. Um, uh, the, the relationship between Hong Kong and London is a bit um, uh, uneasy over several issues. For example, over the course of supporting British garrison in Hong Kong, about the devaluation of pound sterlings, and also about all these export textile quotas. So I think um, I think London probably believed that with someone from the Foreign Service, they have a more direct uh, uh, or more cordial uh, communications between that, Hong Kong and London. That's interesting. Was, he was a Labour Party appointment, is that right? Yeah. Okay. So, and and he wasn't a sinologist. No, but he has served in um, Beijing embassy so he, before he okay. came. So he mm. is not completely ignorant of mm. China or in the region. Okay, um, good. So let's, that's Michael Hose. We don't want to talk about him all the time because we really <laughs> want to talk, talk about Hong Kong. So, Dai Lok, tell us a bit about the Hong Kong in which... McLehose arrived. He came here in 1971. Mm-hmm. What kind of a place was it? Well, um, probably nowadays when we look back, of course, we say that you know the early 70s uh, was already a period of uh, prosperity and stability. But 
if you have a chance to read some of those, um, um, well, nowadays declassified documents, um, then the colonial government at that time have a very different interpretation and evaluation. And one of the interesting things that uh, actually brought up by uh, uh, Murray McLehose was that um, when, when he arrived, he, he thought that, you know, most of the people in Hong Kong would not trust the colonial government. And they don't really have confidence. And so one of the major challenges for him is to ensure that, you know, um, how are you going to build the confidence uh, in the colonial government as can, well as people who trust you? Can, can you explain this? Because was this just because Britain was a declining power, the, the, the empire, most of it was already gone? Um, or was it specific to Hong Kong and the situation here and China and all the rest of it? I would say both. Uh, one is, of course, the, uh, the changing fortune of the empire itself. And the other is, of course, uh, those challenges posed by uh, the 67 riot and also uh, the kind of connection between Hong Kong and London, including issues like the devaluation of the uh, pound sterling. And most people at that time in Hong Kong would assume that, you know, okay, money would be taken away uh, because mm. they were taking care of England. Mm. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> how can I trust you? You're right yeah. point, your point about the, mm-hmm. who pays for the garrison. Yeah. Right. Mm. Okay. Um, dialogue, just... This was just before MacLeod's, but mm-hmm. remind us a bit about the 1967 riots because that's an important part of the context, isn't right. it? And also, when he arrived, it was a time that, you know, don't forget, it, it, one of the earliest campaigns that early MacLeod's launched is clean Hong Kong and fight against violent crime. And that's exactly captured what, what, what happened then in, in, in the sense that, you know, you, you're never sure about public hygiene uh, and, 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 and how clean Hong Kong would be at that time. And at the same time, you know, uh, violent crime was a very, very serious issue. Um, um, I was brought up in, in, in a public housing estate uh, when I was a, a late primary school and early secondary school student. Uh, being mugged is, well, part of everyday life. Um, so at that time, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a very different Hong Kong. Um, You're talking about organized crime or, or just a general lawless uh, both. freeze? Both, uh, because... Again, of course, we have organized crime, but at the same time, because of the changes in the uh, organized crime scene itself, as a result of that, you, don't, you have a lot of street gangs mm. that claim to be associated with organized mm. crime, but somehow they're going around and uh, mucking people and <laughs> robbing people and that kind of thing. But, but, but I think Bagley Holes also came at a time uh, with a, a different China, in a sense that 1971 officially, Cultural Revolution, is still was still going on, but I think by that time, um, uh, Mao Tong and other top leaders probably come back to senses a bit, uh, talking about restoring normalcy. And one of the major changes they have in mind about uh, we ent- we engaging the outside world. And I think that uh, Britain is always keen to maintain a good relationship with China. After all, they are one of the one of the country recognized PLC. So I think yeah. uh, Magnihol's mission probably is to take care of that side of the business concerning the relationship with China. So at this, by the time Magnihol arrives, would this be right? There's no longer a, an anxiety that the Cultural Revolution is simply going to wash into Hong Kong and destroy it. I, I think <coughs> by 1971, the most viol- let's put it this way: the most violent phase of cultural revolution was more or less over, mm. although officially it's still there. And they're a key signal that Beijing wants to maintain better order internally, externally. And I think um, the, the contact behind the scene between Beijing and Washington and London probably is quite rigorous. So I think London probably have that in mind when they appoint a uh, diplomat uh, to be the governor, because China is always yeah. a factor uh, yes. for Hong Kong affairs. And it's also interesting to find that, you know, um, 
before and after uh, MacLeod's arrival, um, uh, he, he of course receives uh, some sort of briefs from uh, London. And at the same time, he also wrote uh, his correspondence and saying, you know, what sort of things that he liked to know about, like uh, before coming, he was saying about, okay, we'll look at transportation, we'll look at uh, vocational training, uh, and, and, and so on. But very quickly after arriving, uh, he shifted the focus a bit and saying that, okay, we need to prepare about the longer-term relationship with, with, with China, and then it's a matter of time that, you know, it's simply demographic. You know, all these revolutionary leaders would come to a stage that they would disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, so without people's confidence and trust in us, one day we need to encounter the issues about the future of Hong Kong, so how are we going to deal with it? He's one of the persons that, you know, actually raised this kind of concern very early on, and it was quite an interesting change. Uh, if you read those files, when he started to preparing for his governorship, and very much immediately upon arrival, and he said, okay, we need to look at this kind of solution. issue. That's, very, that's the foreign office background, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah definitely. Yeah. Thinking. Okay, so we can see then what, what Britain wants Hong Kong to be. It's an important card mm-hmm. in, the, in the game that they're playing with China. We can see more or less, I think, now what China wants Hong Kong to mm-hmm. be. They, they don't want to take Hong Kong over, but they want it to be... Uh, prosperous. They want it to be well governed. Mm. Want it not to not to be problematic, because the factor in this equation we haven't talked about is Hong Kong people. Mm. So, <laughs> what do they want? Well, I do believe that it also turned out to be a period of time when uh, Hong Kong people's own attitude towards Hong Kong uh, had experienced, I would say, you know, a transformation. Um, my own analysis and writing keep arguing that, you know, sort of somewhere around 1974-75, that was really the watershed. Before that, as I said, you know, you, you're not sure about public hygiene, you're not mm-hmm. sure about crime scene, law and order, and don't forget, uh, we have ICC we only in 74, we need to talk about and that, before yeah. that, you know, um, when I was growing up, you go into the wet market, you can find actually policemen catering money mm. from, from the hawkers and, and, yes. and all these things. So people were very skeptical. People tend to think that, you know, this is a colonial government, so this is it. Um, but around mid-70s, then people start changing. And, 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 and then, well, Cantonese pop songs pop up, TV dramas become very popular, people proud of being here and find that, you know, okay, we're doing, seems to be even better than Taiwan, uh, a lot better than mainland China. Compared with overseas Chinese communities, we're not doing bad. Um, so the sense of stability and prosperity was really formed around the period of time. So what they want, of course, is just keep the status quo, you know, state what it is. You, I, I wanted to come on to this a, a bit later, but let's talk about it now since we've started. Mm-hmm. This question of a, of a Hong Kong identity, mm-hmm. um, which you, you talk about in your work, I, I know quite mm-hmm. a lot. And you mentioned <clears throat> things like Cantonese films and, and all the rest of it. But there are also these government programs, are there not, which seem to be things like the Don't Rubbish the Streets, mm. have a sense of civic pride. That has to do with hygiene, but it's also political, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It has to do with changing the way that people think about the place mm. where they live. Mm. Yeah? Uh, yes, but at the same time, that's the uh, dilemma of the colonial government. On one side, they want to promote that kind of public spirit. But at the same time, they need to contain it. You know, don't go beyond that. And go beyond it where? Meaning that, you know, don't, don't take this sort of civic 
spirit too seriously because they don't want you to turn it into a sense of citizenship. And then you ask for participation, okay. and then yeah. you ask for representation. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened in, when, when Murray McLehose established the Mutual Aid Committee. He sort of imposed it from above and said, hey, we need to do that. And then when he would start doing that, and after a period of time, then some of those Mutual Aid Committees think that, okay, we, we, we are the representatives of the people, right? Mm. So they start having this idea of being representative, yeah. And then the government came in and said, no, thank you very much. You know, we're not exactly talking about that. Um, you need to be civic, but <laughs> meaning that, you know, you behave properly, standing in queues, clean Hong Kong, but don't ever think that you are a real representative of your neighborhood because, you know, don't think about election. But, but interesting just to, to talk about this uh, emergence of Hong Kong identity in the 70s and, and compare what we got today. I think you look back in the 70s, this kind of um, so-called identity is, uh, is full of ambiguity. It is, it is something between mm-hmm. the, the, the British, uh, being a British subject, uh, a Chinese ethnicity, and also some kind of local attachment. Uh, but nobody wants to really have a clear definition what exactly mean by Hong Kong people. It, it is, in a way, quite inclusive. And it's quite flexible, and, mm. uh, and and I think this is how how Hong Kong people develop their identity over this uh, last uh, um, at least bef- between 1970s and and the uh, uh, 1990s. I think this is I think is quite a, a, a distinctive features about the identity formations of Hong Kong um, in the last uh, two decades of the colonial rule. Let's take a let's put a political question mm. next. Because the sort of superstructure of all this is is the the political organisation of Hong Kong. Mm. Okay, it, it's a colony. Mm-hmm. There's a legislative council which is a, appointed. We're talking about 1971. Right. Yeah. They're all appointed. Is all that appointed. Right? Okay, so it's the head of the armed forces and the bishop and various bankers and mm. this kind of thing. Now, during the Maclose's time, that begins to change, doesn't it? Mm. Um, Not drastically, <clears throat> because only towards the end of his term, then we we have the district board. Other mm. than that, uh, actually, there haven't been uh, measures of democratization. In between, mm. he changed the way that he, he, he formed the Legislative Council. Uh, but that was mainly because of the, at that time, uh, there was huge pressure from, from London saying that you need to make some gesture or, or measures to show that you, 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 you take care of people from all walks of life, especially those from the grassroots. Mm-hmm. Originally, um, actually, Mary McLehose promised that, okay, we, we don't need democratization because that would bring in the communists and the nationalists to the picture. We don't want that. But we would do something. And then he, he made up the story saying that, you know, the mutual aid committee would be ideal source of identified future leaders. So this is at a very local level, is yeah. that right? Mm-hmm. But in the process, when he need to cook up three new candidates to bring into the, uh, the legislative council, he, he wasn't able to identify three people from the grassroots. So as a result of that, he brought mm. in um, the bus uh, uh, yeah, preachers uh, representing uh, Catholic and Christian, and they have been working with the grassroots and neighbor groups mm-hmm. uh, to replace uh, the so-called um, people really coming, local people coming from the uh, uh, local neighborhood. Um, so in a sense that if you talk about democratization, what has been achieved by Mary McLehose public is a less loss, less than most people have expected. So, nothing in the way of accountability. 
not much because at that time I, I, I think the sort of argument is still centering around whenever you do something like this, then you would bring in Beijing. They wouldn't want it. No one wanted it. Yes. Um, or probably about including local people. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that question is being sort of, you know, out of the picture. Okay. So the political structures don't change very much. But there is a, an introduction, and I started off in my introduction saying there was very little welfare provision um, at the time when MacLeod came in. Um, but by the time he left, there was more, wasn't there? Yeah. A lot more. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, I think this is what uh, most people remember uh, about Magnihost, right? We, we, many people call this the golden years of social reform, and you see this um, the, the rigorous housing program, um, schooling opportunity, and even uh, uh, protection of workers. But I mean, to be fair, this is very much um, a continuation uh, of this reform initiative um, since um, late 1950s or early 1960s. I think oh, really? his, his predecessors, like, mm-hmm. for example, David Trench, I think he realized that there they, they were problems partly because of these rapid expansions of Hong Kong population in the post-war year. Uh, I think in the early 1960s, they already start talking about uh, education reform. Mm-hmm. They're talking about training of social workers, so on and so forth. But I think that kind of discussion came a bit too little too late, and, and then you have this uh, 1967 riot. But I think mm-hmm. that riot, in a way, is a blessing in disguise that they create a momentum to tell everybody, every stakeholder in Hong Kong, something must be done. Something must be the done. The people were not happy. I think that create a uh, a push for a, a, a source of support for Magni Host. And at the same time, he was lucky, wasn't he, in that Hong Kong was becoming much more prosperous. Yeah. Well, yes and no, because don't forget we have the oil crisis <coughs> in um, 73, 74. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a time when, when, when the government, colonial government, well, seldomly, get into deficit. Uh, but Mary McClough's insists on saying that you, we will keep spending on, on public housing. And, and part of the equation is it's not just about economics because Mary McClough's put a lot of emphasis saying that, you know, we need to make sure that Hong Kong will be developed into an Asian city that have a standard of life wealth above mainland China. And this is the only way that we can, we can win the support from the public because, you know, you have a better life, you have, a, you know, a free life, and this is what makes you happy to stay here. Um, So that is one of the reasons why he uh, keep on saying that, you know, even though that this is a difficult time, we need to keep on spending. Uh, But of course, he's also lucky in the sense that the oil crisis in Asia, very quickly that it it, it came in, unlike what happened in in, in Europe and the UK, Mm. where you have the legacy of the oil crisis for a long, long period of time of unemployment here. Very quickly, by 75, 76, then everything is all right, uh, and then growing and and prosperous, and everything is on the right track. Good. We need to talk about the ICAC because mm. this is one of the most important stories, <laughs> isn't it? The Michael years. Yeah. Independent Commission Against Corruption. What's the story? Well, right. I, th- I think the, this is probably a, a, a long story in the sense that we look at the colonial rules in the early, early years. They, they always have, a, have this kind of attitude, this corruption is a Chinese thing. <laughs> um, and uh, they, all, they always believe that the British core is more or less incorruptible, although they don't, they don't put it that way publicly. But I think that the, the conclusion is, okay, there were widespread corruption, but they are confined at the, at the lower level. Mm-hmm. And by and large, the machinery is all right, but obviously it's not the case. Yeah. So I think since the post-war year, there have been efforts to trying to solve the problem. Uh, in fact, everybody talk about ICAC uh, under Magni Hosea, but we have to remember that that ordinance of anti-bribery ordinance was passed before Magni Hosea came to Hong Kong. Oh, really? 
Yeah, and uh, and 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 there's always uh, the police always uh, we put this story to you that it is not the ICC arrest God Peter Godbert, it is the anti-corruption branch of the policemen. Who ah, do the job? So I, I think that so Godber, who was the police, was the superintendent. Yeah, who was the most yeah, corrupt he, he, of the senior, officers. the most senior one, and then yeah. he was prosecuted by the uh, the, the police. Mm. But he somehow managed to uh, go back, to, went back to London, full Kaito Airport. Nobody know what happened, and I think that the, <laughs> that create a very embarrassing situation. Mm. And eventually, I think Matt Lee Holt believed that we have to do something to convince the people that we are serious about um, corruption. Uh, uh, the, the campaign, then I think was, that's how ICAC came into the picture. And it was pretty radical, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we're not, I mean, the, the police were, as it were, the, the pointy end of this, but ICAC in, in ICAC's investigations spread over all sorts of institutions, businesses, and so on. Gradually, but then, of course, the early start would be focusing on uh, policemen. Police first. Uh, yeah. But I, I must say that, you know, um, if we go back to, to, to the 70s, it's not easy to really convince the public that, you know, yeah. you're really hitting the so-called tigers mm. uh, because most people would think that, you know, you, you're just making some gestures and that's the end of it. Um, you're not really that serious. So ICAC actually was very, very successful in the sense that, you know, it, it really make sure that everyone would take it very, very seriously. And that was you know, the trigger for, for all these changes in the, f- mm. the following years. And mm. I think it's very important um, to change the people's perception about the colonial rule because when we were kids, this corruption is very open. Yeah. Uh, we can see the policemen go into the hawkers collecting money yeah. right in front of us on a daily basis. When we were kids, we don't know why these people keep giving money to <laughs> tipping the police, for what reason. <laughs> and then we realize that uh, it is uh, corruption. It is that open. And so uh, people really shocked that uh, the government eventually uh, do something... Uh, seriously, to try to uproot uh, the problem, and they did a good job. To be fair, it, it worked. Didn't yeah, it? yeah, because uh, I think it, 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 they were so successful. In the end, they provoked the, chi- the, the police into some kind of uh, ra- um, yes. the mutiny. Yes. This is how successful they are, because everybody was worried about their, <laughs> yeah. their, their faith in the police force. That's a remarkable thing. Who takes the credit for that? For the success of the ICAC? Well. Ray would know. <laughs> no, I would say Magny Host, of course, he's the one who make the, the order, right? Okay, mm-hmm. let's, let's go for it. And uh, you, you must give credit uh, to him. But I, as I said, that there are many other governors before him who uh, make a serious effort, for example, in passing the, um, okay. the, the, the ordinance, <clears throat> which give the, uh, the, the, the anti-corruption uh, department the power, for example, okay. to investigate into your account. I think the major change is, now, under the, under the new ordinance, or anti-bribery ordinance, we, I don't have to prove that you are, you are taking bribe, right? In, on the other way around, you have to prove that why you have so much not. money. That yes. makes a big difference. Yeah. And, and, that, and that law was very much an effort of uh, uh, two or three governors before him. Right. And I think in also a lot of persuasions uh, in the public and with the police force that we have to set up something um, independent from the police force to do the job. And... Uh, it is not started with uh, Magni Hoax. Okay. It started much earlier than that. So I think it's a collective effort um, yeah. over But if I may put a footnote, is that there was also, of course, the student movement, yeah. the um, anti-corruption and arrest Godba campaign uh, with a lot of student activists playing a very important role. Around that period of time, I think most people would say that you expect this from, from, from colonial rule. You know, what, what do you think? <laughs> that, that, that kind of attitude. And uh, this young student at that time making their voice and, and, and 
pointing out, you know, how serious they they are they were on, mm. on, on that issue. I think is important. Well, you were both students. You were both students at Hong Kong University um, under Mac Lowe's, Is that right? Yes, but he no. was. I was. Um, I was much younger. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what was it like being a student? How did you feel about? So this is a terribly vague question. How did you feel about Hong Kong when you were a university student? Were you discontented with it? Things obviously that you wanted to change. Well, I think the seventies. One of the most interesting and probably nowadays why people get so nostalgic about the seventies is is. You feel the change. I became a secondary school student in 1970 mm-hmm. and entered university around 77, 78. And it was a time when you start changing, having the attitude saying that you know, probably we can, we can expect something. Government has to be accountable and responsive. Mm. And you can control your own life. Unlike my, our parents, they were refugees. And they simply think that you know, everything is dictated by the environment. You know, it's, that's the turmoil. But we are beginning to think that, you know, if you work harder, probably you get something. And around that period of time, I, I was brought up in a public housing estate. And when you get into university, it's a super big deal. We are talking yeah. about 2 3% of the people of the same cohort yes. getting into university. And it's almost meaning that, you know, you, you, you become someone. Um, so you really feel that, you know, and, and I can imagine that, you know, around that period of time, my parents would say that, you know, I, I have my son – not all of them, just one among the three children, one of them would be able to get into university. Yes. And you can do that by, you know, work hard, have luck in public exam, but no matter what, this is it. You, you can make changes. And that, that's one of the reasons of the feel-good factor in the 70s. Mm. Towards the end of the Michael years, and we're getting towards the end of, of mm. our time, but mm. we have to mention um, the, the question of sovereignty. I think London, in, in a way, was uh, always have this 1990s, Seven issue in mind after the 1967 riot because when you look at all these um, all these reflections uh, from the on the lessons of 1967 riot, um, uh, London the official have some various report on that. I think one thing one of the conclusions they have in mind is uh, the issue of nationalism is uh, is something Beijing take it very seriously. Yes, uh, 1997 issue is not a hypothetical one, mm. and, and they also said that uh, the British have to prepare for that have to prepare for these uh, negotiations. And uh, if we haven't started that uh, after, uh, by early 1980s, there would be a confidence crisis. So this is exactly what happened. Many hosts have this in mind. This is really because I'm in the picture now, mm-hmm. and I remember people saying, oh, we should just keep quiet about 1997 and you know, just pretend that everything is just going to go on. Well, but at the same time, don't forget, you know, uh, I think in Mary Macleod's mind is that seems to be the golden opportunity when he had a chance to go to Beijing. Mm. because that's the end of the Cultural Revolution. Yeah. China mm. is thinking about economic reform, uh, and Hong Kong would play a very critical role um, in terms of money, in terms of uh, manpower, all kinds right. of things. So this, if you, if you have the chance to talk to Beijing, this seems to be the best chance. Yes. And at the same time, they, they also feel that there are pressures from business sector, banking, saying that you know, at that time you only have 15 years mortgage. So if you don't course, yeah. deal with that issue before 1982, that's the end of it. Hmm. And then they think, that okay, maybe we can talk to Deng Xiaoping by saying that you don't mention the, the date, yes. but by saying that you know, the continuation of the British rule, then everything will be all right. But, of course, if I hmm. remember that, you know, reading from the declassified document hmm. that, you know, uh, Mary McLeod's interpretation of what happened in the meeting is Mr. Deng didn't seem to know what he's talking about. 
Mm-hmm. And by respond by saying that you know we are very serious about sovereignty issue. So thank you very much. <laughs> okay, and uh, this exciting point of the story, we have to stop because we've run out of time. We've almost run out of microphones. Sure. We'll have to come back and do another program about what happened next. <laughs> <laughs> but meanwhile, thank you both very much, Lloyd Ilott sure. and Ray. Yes. Yep. And thank, thank you. you for listening.